listening to an exclusive podcast from Pituitary World News. This is Jorge Fascinetti. Welcome. When people affected by acromegaly talk about their experiences with the disease, it usually meanders to what some people call the diagnosis journey. And it goes something like this. Somebody will say, boy, it took forever for, for someone to figure it out. Or I keep bouncing between doctors. Nobody knew what was going on. They told me to stop eating and exercise more. That's another one that we hear a lot. And my primary care doc never put it together. But you get the gist. The conversation inevitably moves into to the symptoms and signs that brought you in to see the doctor in the first place. Yes, those are the same symptoms and signs that eventually lead to a proper diagnosis. In this podcast, Dr. Blevins dives into those clinical features of acromegaly with a fascinating discussion about symptoms and signs and gives us an unfettered glimpse into the complexities that invariably lead to a delay in diagnosis. Here's Dr. Blevins. Good afternoon. This is Dr. Lewis Blevins of Pituitary World News. I'm podcasting to you today from Sausalito, California. And I want to talk about clinical features of acromegaly. I will, however, preface my comments by a few general comments regarding clinical symptoms and signs. Now, I see a lot of posts on social media where people will state that they have a particular symptom or sign. They'll write to the group, obviously, uh, and wonder if anybody else has that symptom or sign. And before you know it, the the group dynamic is left with the sense that that particular symptom or sign, which is often totally unrelated, may be due to the underlying disease process. And sometimes people even talk about how doctors don't know what they're doing or talking about uh, uh, because they don't recognize something as part of a clinical syndrome. Now, to use some analogies to your car, uh, if you've got a problem with your brakes, that's not going to affect the way your transmission goes from first to second gear. And likewise, if you have a a problem with your transmission going from Uh, First to second gear, that's not going to cause your brake lights to flicker or your brakes to not work. Um, And the analogy is important here because we know through well-defined physiology of hormones and hormone systems what hormones usually do. And we know what happens if those hormones are in deficient state or if they're in an excess state. So we know what people with acromegaly are going to have and people with uh, growth hormone deficiency for example, we're going to have some of the symptoms overlap, but they're uh, on opposite spectrums of a particular disorder of growth hormone secretion. Uh, so each one will have their characteristic symptoms or signs. We even recognize people who have acromegaly who've been treated and have now, now have, have growth hormone deficiency, what their symptoms and signs are going to be. So I think it's important to stay grounded to the clinical science and physiology and pathophysiology and recognize that these are disease states that have been known about for over a hundred years and we understand what those symptoms and signs are. Now I have a problem with the way doctors think. Um, 
I think a little bit differently. I'm not saying that my way of thinking about uh, different disease states is the correct one, but I have evolved my thinking over time through the practice of medicine and seeing large volumes of patients with particular disorders, including acromegaly. And I want to focus a little bit on what the disease is and the resulting clinical syndrome and how that might be different in each of you and how pretty much how it's understandable that there's often a delay in diagnosis. Now, at Pituitary World News, we're working with you folks and physicians and uh, pharmaceutical companies to try to uh, lend uh, information that will permit earlier diagnosis and successful treatment. Uh, but with that said, uh, the current state of affairs is something that I can understand very well, having practiced this uh, specialty for 30 years now uh, and having seen my first patient with acromegaly 32 years ago. So I, I mentioned um, an interest in how doctors think. And um, you know, in medical school, we're taught to recognize disease patterns, and we're usually taught the most common symptoms and signs of different diseases, and we recognize there's a lot of overlap with other diseases, and we're required to sort of understand that if you have a patient with chest pain, for example, it could be a number of different things. So we work through what's called the differential diagnosis, and we order appropriate tests to evaluate a differential diagnosis, and then sort of hone in on the actual diagnosis, if you will, and pituitary tumors are the same. This is the way doctors are taught. We learned that acromegaly is enlargement of the hands and the feet, a few facial changes, changes in dentition and bite, prognathism or growth of the mandible. Some patients may have sweating, others may have skin tags, thickened skin, enlarged hands and feet that I mentioned, but that can be associated with carpal tunnel syndrome and tarsal tunnel syndrome, arthritis, sleep apnea, hypertension, diabetes, just a whole list of things. And unfortunately, many of these things are common. Uh, and uh, seen in things such as metabolic dis metabolic syndrome or dysfunction where patients can have hypertension and diabetes and high insulin levels, which can cause you to look acromegaloid, for example. But at any rate, we're taught, and many of the large series of acromegaly will talk about the proportion of their patients who had enlargement of the hands and hypertension and diabetes and sleep apnea, etc. And that's what we're taught to learn. So physicians if they have any re recollection of what they were taught about acromegaly, sort of look at a patient from this perspective. You have to keep in mind a lot of doctors are busy, so they're not going to recognize that, oh, you might have acromegaly because they don't, they, they don't know you for long and they don't know that your physical appearance has changed dramatically in the past decade. But they may see that you have hypertension and diabetes and they're managing that and maybe you're 55 and you have arthritis and some people have premature arthritis or whatever. Uh, so that's that's how doctors think. We do know, however, that um, those clinical symptoms and signs of acromegaly are not what bring patients to the uh, attention of the uh, providers who ultimately diagnose and treat the acromegaly. So when it comes to looking at presenting symptoms and signs, the most common Presenting symptom and sign that leads to an ultimate diagnosis of acromegaly is menstrual irregularity in women. 
So I can think probably of 10 reasons women can have menstrual irregularity, and acromegaly wouldn't be at the top of that list. So uh, gynecologists probably are have offices filled with women who have irregular menses, and they accept it as the normality or the range of normal. Yet this is the most common symptom in, uh, that leads to a diagnosis of acromegaly in a series of acromegalic patients that have been studied. Enlargement of the... Um, Hands and feet only accounts for 11% of people when that's the presenting symptom or sign uh, of acromegaly. Hypertension, diabetes, sleep apnea are way down there. The largest proportion of patients with acromegaly are diagnosed by chance. Maybe they have an MRI of the head and found to have a pituitary tumor, and then we back into the diagnosis of acromegaly, if you will. Uh, or perhaps a dentist recognizes the dental abnormalities and refers the patient for evaluation. Or uh, a physician sees the patient that comes to mind, or a family member, or some other person who recognizes the change in features and suggests that uh, the patient might have a disorder of growth hormone hypersecretion. So this literature is out there. There are two very different um, problems, if you will, and how do we get from what are the symptoms and signs of acromegaly to what brings patients to the doctor with acromegaly and lead to earlier diagnosis and treatment? And the more I think that we have uh, some well-defined potential ways to do this, the less I think we're going to be able to accomplish those things. Um because the yield is going to be so low. I mean, we certainly we could send information sheets or cards to podiatrists so they can look out for changes in feet or dentists so they can look at the dental abnormalities. Um, and we could send information to every physician about symptoms and signs of acromegaly and things to watch for. But their, their clinics are busy, and they're seeing patients with far more common disease processes, and I'm not sure that's going to work. What I think will work is word-of-mouth, grassroots efforts, where those of you who have acromegaly educate your physicians and your friends, and you spread the word individually and collectively. That's going to be logarithmic, unmeasurable um, education that I think will uh, serve to benefit society and future patients will be afflicted with this disease process. Now let me talk a little bit about uh, variations in biology and help you understand why no two patients with acromegaly, acromegaly are alike. And I think that these variations and some of the things I'm going to talk about might help you to understand why there is such a delay in diagnosis and and uh, why primary physicians who don't have the perspective of a pituitary endocrinologist like myself and some of my colleagues are going to miss this uh, diagnosis. So first off, growth hormone and IGF-1 play a role in all sorts of metabolic processes. Um, every single individual has their own normal IGF-1 that's regulated fairly tightly their own pattern of growth hormone secretion, uh, their own biology, if you will. And uh, that varies greatly from one individual to the next. 
the liver sensitivity to growth hormone, for example, is different from one person to the next. And in patients with acromegaly, you can see a growth hormone of five in widely different IGF-1 levels, ranging from, you know, 300 to 1,200 um, and part of that is because when we check a single growth hormone level, we're getting a single level for that five-second biopsy of time. It takes that tube to fill with blood, and it doesn't tell us anything about the 24-hour integrated growth hormone secretion and the exposure of the liver to growth hormone excess. Um, so in summary, there are different tissue sensitivities in the, in the liver and also the peripheral tissues to growth hormone and subsequently to IGF-1. While all of my patients with acromegaly have tumors that secrete growth hormone, those tumors are highly variable. Some of them are small, some of them are large, some are invasive, some are not. Some are giant adenomas that are greater than four to five centimeters in size. All the growth hormone levels differ, all the IGF-1 levels differ. Uh, some large tumors have low levels of IGF-1, some small tumors have high levels of IGF-1. So there's a tremendous variation uh, in uh, growth hormone secretion and IGF-1 generation in patients with acromegaly who have growth hormone secreting pituitary adenomas. Now, in general, the bigger the tumor, the higher the growth hormone, the higher the IGF-1, but that doesn't always hold true. That's a very loose correlation in my experience. Um, and when you throw that into the fact that tumor biology uh, is different um, even in tumors that are the same size, uh, it, some, some are going to be aggressive for other reasons that don't have anything to do with growth hormone secretion. It throws another sort of angle into this uh, situation. Some tumors may grow fast, for example, as a result of those changes in biology. Other tumors may be slow-growing tumors. So if you put it all together, you could end up with 100 patients who have the same size tumor but 100 different growth hormone levels and 100 different IGF-1 levels and 100 different sets of clinical symptoms and signs. Uh, leave the tumor out and say that everybody has the same growth hormone level. You're going to have 100 different IGF-1 levels and different clinical symptoms and signs as a result. Let's take the IGF-1, make everything else different, but the IGF-1 the same, identical in a group of people. You'll still have 100 different collections of symptoms and signs. And this is because of the biological diversity in human beings. We all are going to respond differently to growth hormone and IGF-1. Some patients are going to get cardiomyopathies, where others won't. Others are going to get hypertension and diabetes, whereas others won't, because the other parts of their physiology compensate for that and protect them against the hypertension or the diabetes. Some are going to have destructed arthritis, whereas others will not. Some have very mild symptoms, have had severe symptoms when they have small tumors and low levels of IGF-1. Uh, that biological diversity is what makes each of us unique, and I think it also, when you look at all these different things I'm talking about, makes it difficult for physicians to diagnose acromegaly sooner rather than later in most patients. And then even if the diseases were the same or you wanted to group them into sort of a normal distribution with a mean, uh, the syndrome is very different, and that's not only because of the biological diversity, but everybody is different. We all have different personalities and different modes of coping, different responses to illness and stress. Our family dynamics are different, our work situations are different, and our finances are different. And of course, the syndrome affects everyone and everybody 
involved not only the family but in the workplace and the friends, not just the individual patient. And the way that feeds back on the individual person affects the clinical syndrome and the symptoms and signs. So it's more complex than what physicians are taught uh, in medical school where, you know, 50 to 80 percent of people have growth uh, hormone secreting pituitary tumors have enlargement of their hands, for example. 20 percent have acromegalic carpal tunnel syndrome. 20 percent have sleep apnea. 40 percent have glucose intolerance, whatever the numbers you know, that's that's really a way of practicing medicine that I think we need to get away from. It's good to help people understand patterns of disease and clinical effects of disease and uh, the uh, effects of excess hormones, but uh, it really takes um, a lot of association and uh, putting things together to come up with a diagnosis sooner rather than later. With all of that said... Uh, I'm sure that each and every one of you could um, share, and I would like for you to do so. Please send us messages, and maybe we'll develop a uh, survey about this. Uh, We want to know what were your symptoms and signs when you were diagnosed, list five, and then what was the main thing, the one thing that took you to the to the uh, doctor that or or led a doctor to suspect you suspect that you had acromegaly. Um, I, I know for some of you it may be multiple, but there's got to be one thing. And if you could just choose one thing, I'd like to know what that was that uh, led to you to ultimately get to the to the road of uh, uh, a diagnosis with uh, acromegaly. So that's enough for now. This is Dr. Lewis Blevins of Pituitary World News. Uh, we look forward to hearing from you. Uh, please have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you, Dr. Blevins. That was a very interesting discussion. We included a link to a survey at the end of the post where you found this podcast. So if you'd like to participate, please click on that link. It will take you to the survey and complete it. Uh, And we are looking forward to getting your uh, input and comments. You have been listening to an exclusive podcast from Pituitary World News. This is Jorge Fascinetti. Thank you for listening.